You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. You hear a lot here at CBC, often in the welcome, when we are coming in the room and we're moving towards the start of the service. The service leader will often step up and say, I'm not sure how your week has been. We say that regularly because we all know that we experience any number of things from Sunday to Sunday. One of the reasons that we need corporate worship is so that we have one day in the week that we set aside to come gather like this and be reminded of what's true to be reminded of what Christ has done for us, to be reminded of who we are in him. As a brother recently said up here, after a week like yours, you need a place like ours. In our weeks, there are good things and pleasant things. There are encouraging things that happen. There are moments when we are palpably reminded of the Lord's mercy and the Lord's grace. And there are hard things, discouraging, frustrating, maybe even heartbreaking things. I know for myself this week, in my heart and mind, I had some high highs and some low lows. I don't know about you, I trust that I'm not alone in that experience or in what I'm about to say. In the low moments, as a believer, you grieve the way you feel. You're aware. You know the truth. You don't want to feel the way you do. If you could snap a finger and change it, you would. You pray. You call to mind the word of the Lord. You talk to yourself. Sometimes you process it and talk with someone close to you. And even with all of this, you can't shake it. You feel stuck. You feel weak. You feel powerless to do anything. It's a very discouraging and frustrating feeling. It can even be disheartening day over day, week over week, month over month. Throw on top of this all the guilt and the shame that we tend to carry around. Throw on top of this the accusations of our consciences and the flaming darts of the enemy. Throw on top of this the afflictions and the sufferings of this life. Throw on top of this the reality of spiritual warfare and the kingdom of darkness. And what reason do we, weak as we are, what reason do we have to hope? God and truth remain, amen. The Lord will usher in the new heavens and the new earth, amen. But what confidence can we have that we, weak as we are, will be granted admittance into it. Beloved, if the gospel 
of the Lord Jesus Christ cannot deal with the weakness and the fears in the deepest recesses of our souls, then what are we doing? Why are we here? I hope you feel that. Today, we will look to the words of Romans 8, 31 to 39. I will read the passage in just a moment, but I want to draw our attention to the question at the beginning of verse 31. That verse begins with these words. What then shall we say to these things? Now, what are these things? Well, they are all of the consolations the words of great comfort, the words of assurance that Paul has written in Romans 8. What shall we say to these things? Consider what Paul has written up to this point. He has declared that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ by faith. This is because the gospel has set us free, like we just said. Set us free from the condemnation of the law. For God did what the law couldn't do. See, we are sinful, and so we cannot be saved by the law. So God saved us, and he did that by sending his son in the likeness of our flesh to keep the law and to die to bear and endure its curse so that all of the righteous requirements of the law would be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We are those who walk by faith in Christ and submit to God's righteousness. Those who are according to the Spirit, said Paul, we have eternal life and we have peace with God forever. Even though our bodies will die, as frightening and as harrowing as that is, there is a day coming when our bodies will be raised without corruption. And we will be raised by the power of the same Spirit who raised Christ himself from the dead. We are adopted as God's sons and daughters. He is no longer our judge. We now call him Father. There is no reason to fear. Because we've been adopted as his children, we now will receive his inheritance, Paul says. That inheritance is certain because it belongs to Jesus and we are united to him. Now, Paul acknowledges that we will suffer with Christ, that Christ came to his inheritance through the cross. And so we too will come to possess our eternal inheritance through suffering, not through triumphant ease. But, he says, the present sufferings, though they may be significant, The present sufferings pale in comparison to the greatness of the glory that's coming. Take heart. For now, the entire creation groans, and so do we. For now, we hope for what we don't see, and we wait for it with patience. But Paul continued to comfort us. As we wait and as we groan, we will be weak, But the Holy Spirit himself helps us in our weakness. He gets up underneath the burden with us and helps us carry it. He helps us in our weakness and our infirmities. He helps us in prayer. 
When we don't know what to pray for as we ought, which frankly is often, he helps us in prayer. He works in our hearts to draw out groanings that are too deep for words. He is with us in the groaning, and he himself intercedes for us according to the will of God. The will of God, mind you, is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. That has been the purpose of God from all of eternity, as was prayed this morning, that God the Son, because of the work that he did, would inherit a people. This people would be resurrected and made like him, conformed to his image, and they would dwell in a new heaven and a new earth with him forever. Our assurance and our comfort and our strength are found in the fact that our salvation does not take rise in us. It doesn't take rise in time and space but it takes rise in the eternal counsel of God himself. And our comfort and our assurance and our strength are found in the fact that God is the one who brings our salvation into effect at every step. Those are the these things that Paul has written. What then shall we say to them? Let's look to the text. Listen now as I read. From God's word, beginning in Romans 8 and verse 31. This is the word of the Lord. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. We thank God for his word today and every day. I want to preach the sermon from here on out in two parts. This is not a very sophisticated outline, and we trust the Lord in that. Part one is simply going to be to look at Paul's argument. We're going to spend some time surveying the text. So the first thing I want to do is to highlight the main things. If someone were to ask you, Romans 8, 31 to 39, what is it saying? How would we begin to answer? The text is not complicated. This is not one of those passages where we need to stare at every word and consider with great depth syntax and grammar and all of those things to even make any sense of it. It is a text that is straightforward in its emphasis. You got the sense of it even as I read it. What shall we say to these wonderful consolations, these wonderful words of comfort that have been laid out 
in Romans 8. Well, Paul starts to begin. Saints, beloved, God is for us. That's what he says. He's for us. If we ever question that, all we have to do is consider one thing, that Christ came. If you ever wonder whether God is for you and for your good, look no further than the fact that God the Son took on flesh and came to earth to save you. That is the evidence that he is for us. And if he did that, if that's the link that God went to to accomplish our salvation, what else would he ever withhold from us? The answer is nothing. Paul then goes on to say, we have been saved from the guilt and the condemnation we deserve. Who shall bring any charge against us? Because God himself is the one who has pronounced us just. Who is there to condemn us, given that Jesus, who will be the judge, is the one who died for us and was raised for us and is seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us? Guilt and shame and fear and doubt are no more. On account of Jesus Christ, we will not face condemnation. No way. We have been reconciled to God, and we have peace with him forever, and beloved, it is finished. Then Paul goes on to consider that the afflictions and the sufferings of this life will not separate us from the love of Christ. And finally, he pivots to life and death itself, along with angels and demons and principalities and powers in the spiritual realm that would include Satan. Not even any of these things will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, the word is, the saints are pure. We are adopted. We are known. We are loved by the Lord of hosts. And none of that is subject to change. Let's dig a little deeper, though. Let's look at the text, smaller pieces at a time. We'll begin by looking at verses 31 to 34. Beginning in verse 31, the second portion of it, as we've already said, if God is for us, who could be against us? Well, no one. But it isn't that we don't have adversaries. Don't get it twisted, right? We have adversaries, real ones, significant adversaries even. Satan, evil spirits, principalities and powers in the realm of darkness, those are adversaries we face. There is the fallen world that is full of corruption. There is indwelling sin and the corruption of the flesh. There are numerous kinds of suffering. There's even death itself. How could we ever stand before adversaries like these? The answer is only because God is for us. It's because he is our shield and our refuge and our strength. It's because he is our redeemer. If God, the most powerful being in the universe, the one who made everything, is for us, who could be against us in a way that will matter at all in the end? That's the argument. There is no power on earth or in heaven or in all the universe that can resist the arm of God. And on the flip side, 
Unless God is for us, there is no lasting hope or confidence or peace to be found. It does not matter how well things are going right now or how well things might be going in five or 10 years. If God isn't for us, it's fleeting. Verse 32, if God gave us his son and he gave him up for us, if he handed him over to be crucified in our place to suffer because of our sin, how will he not also with his son graciously give us all things? The answer is, of course, well, he will. He will. Christ for us, we have, we say this a lot. We need to own this because we are so prone to look at our own lives and our own circumstances to determine whether or not God loves us and to determine whether or not God is graciously inclined toward us. Christ for us is the evidence. Christ for us is the definitive demonstration that God loves us and that he is committed not just to our temporal well-being, but that he is committed to our eternal good. If God has given us the greatest gift that could ever be given, then nothing that is for our ultimate and eternal good would ever be withheld from us. Verse 33, very simple. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, against God's chosen people? Who is able to make a charge against them that will stick? No one. This is because it is God himself who has justified his people, which leads us right into verse 34. Who is there to condemn the people of God? No one, right? This is because Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised. This is how God has justified us. Jesus died to make satisfaction for our sins. He fulfilled the penalty and the curse of the law in full. In the day you eat of it, said the Lord, you will surely die. Spiritual, temporal, eternal death. Christ endured these things. He bore the wrath of God in the place of sinners. Every bit of justice that lawbreakers deserve, he received it. God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon us. Every drop of wrath that miserable sinners deserve, Christ drained it to the dregs. And then, having died, having been buried, he was raised. His sacrifice was vindicated. His resurrection was the stamp from the Father himself that it is enough. View him prostrate in the garden. On the ground, your maker lies. On the bloody tree, behold him. Sinner. Will this not suffice? Oh, it will. It will suffice. Jesus died for our guilt, and then his resurrection, beloved, was our acquittal from every charge. And so anyone who would seek to condemn us, hear this, anyone who would seek to condemn us, and this includes Satan himself, would have to put Christ back in the grave. And that is not happening. 
and neither will our condemnation. Who is to condemn? No one. This is also because, in addition to Jesus dying and being raised, he is seated now at the right hand of God, and indeed, he intercedes for us. Christ is the place of all power and all authority. Everything is put in subjection to him. And he is the one who invites us to come. To come to him for forgiveness and for righteousness and for eternal life and for rest and for peace in our souls. And he lives forever. His resurrection, he lives forever. He has an indestructible life. And so he lives as our high priest always to intercede and pray and advocate for us. Let's look now at verses 35 through 37. Beginning of verse 35, Paul asks a question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he begins to consider things that hypothetically could. He begins to offer stuff. Well, maybe this might, or maybe this could. Then in the second portion of verse 35 through verse 37, Paul begins with the afflictions of this life, with what we might call outward trials, tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. These are things that we endure as people who live in a fallen world under the sun, and Some of these are more pointedly things that are done to us because we're Christ's people. Blessed are you, we heard it last week, when you were persecuted, when you were reviled for the sake of my name and on account of righteousness, right? These things will happen to Christ's people. Paul then cites Psalm 44 to illustrate that God's people suffer greatly in this life, even sometimes at the hands of wicked people. God's people in this life are at times oppressed and afflicted and mocked and reviled and even killed. Psalm 44, read it this afternoon or sometime this week. It is strong and prophetic in its language. It certainly does describe the sufferings of God's people even in the Old Covenant era, and it points clearly to the suffering of God's people in the New. That's how Paul understands it. That's how Paul uses it. In his argument. And it's not, again in the psalm, it's not that the people of God have broken the Lord's covenant, that they're facing these things. But will these sufferings, these afflictions, these persecutions, all of these horrific things that we endure in this life under the sun, will they take us away from the love of Christ? Paul says, no. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. Now, clearly, I I don't need to spend a lot of time on this. Clearly, Paul does not mean conquerors in this life. He means conquerors in light of the next one. The reason we say that is there are ample witnesses in the scriptures that there are plenty of people who have lived by faith in the Son of God who've been tortured and mocked and flogged and imprisoned and stoned and sawn in two killed by the sword, who've been destitute and afflicted and mistreated. That's clear. It is from an eternal perspective that we are more than conquerors through Christ, through the one who loved us. Don't miss that part. 
Then we have verses 38 and 39. In these verses, Paul pivots, if possible, to even more weighty reality. Life and death itself. Spiritual realm stuff. Principalities and powers, that kind of stuff. Even these, the gravest things and the most powerful things in the universe are not able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. Now, we could get caught up in what all of the individual words mean. I mean, we could, you know, now what, what does the word powers mean? And we could get the concordance out and we could do all that kind of stuff. But we know what Paul is talking about. You do. He's talking about angels, holy ones and fallen ones. He's talking about the forces of heaven and hell. He's talking about the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. He's talking about the adversary himself. Satan, the ancient serpent who is the devil. The God of this world, he's called, by Jesus and Paul. The father of lies. The one who's been a murderer from the beginning. Who disguises himself as an angel of light. Who roams about like a lion, seeking those he may devour the one who is the great accuser of the brethren. That's what Paul's talking about. We don't talk about these things perhaps as much as we should, but we are in the midst of a cosmic war. In the world, the enemy seeks to keep people blind to eternal realities. And the enemy in the world seeks to make people comfortable and confident apart from Christ. People often think that if Satan could do anything he wanted to do, that things would just be as bad as they could possibly be. I don't think so. Satan would have people be comfortable and confident in the world and seeing no need whatsoever of Christ for them. But for the saints, the enemy seeks to unsettle he seeks to cause us to doubt and to fear. Where he cannot destroy, you better believe that he seeks to rob of joy and peace and freedom. He seeks to cause division amongst God's people. You've seen it. You've felt it. So have I. In your day-to-day -day life, as we look at the world, you sense and you feel like there's darkness, man. Heavy. Frightening. But even all of this, including Satan himself, is not able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. What I want to do now in the second portion of the message is to further reflect and apply this passage to our hearts and our minds. I have three points of reflection in application. Number one, not a great header here, but that's okay. Notice where Paul begins in verse 33 and 34. That's effectively my heading. Notice where Paul begins in verse 33 and verse 34. Just listen for a second. He deals with anyone bringing a charge against us, anyone condemning us. And here's the reality. For any of us who have ever had and all the saints, by definition, have had this. For any who have had any glimpse of God, 
any glimpse of his holiness, any glimpse of the law and our sin, we are gripped by the fact that we're guilty. We know that we stand condemned in ourselves. We know that we're not good enough. We know how much we struggle to live in a way that the law outlines, and we're grieved by that. And so the saints, many saints, are often haunted by their own consciences. And then the enemy doubles down on that with his flaming darts and his accusations. You, you have no faith. Your faith is so weak. Christ won't regard that. You've got no love. You've got no doing any good. This is how he accuses us. For the believer, this is important. For the believer, the fears that we have within regarding our guilt and our condemnation are far more formidable than our outward trials and the hatred of this world. For the saints, the inward trials, fear of guilt and condemnation are far bigger than outward trials, suffering and affliction and hatred of the world. For Paul, first, notice, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And now, having established that, we can talk about suffering. And we can talk about spiritual warfare. Paul, for him, first, there are the matters of guilt and condemnation and the fear that comes from that. And then secondly, there are matters of affliction and suffering and spiritual warfare. If we are not delivered from the first, we will never be able to stand in the second. This is why Paul first establishes and reasserts our peace with God and the assurance that we will be finally saved. You see, if we're afraid, think about this. If we are afraid, if we suspect that we may very well face God's wrath, if we're unsure that God really loves us, really, if we don't know that we know that we know that we're safe forever, but there's this haunting suspicion that at the end of it all, God's going to turn the table on us and drop the hammer. If that's where we are, we will not be able to trust him and have confidence in him when we face affliction and when we face trials of this life, let alone the assaults of the enemy. This is why the scriptures bear witness over and over again to the fact that we are forgiven and that we're counted righteous and that salvation is ours on account of Christ alone. Consider just from a few chapters ago, it's been a minute since we were there. If you want to turn over to Romans 5, beginning in verse 1, this is the pattern that Paul uses. This is how the apostles write. Beginning in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been justified, and so we have peace. This is not just in the present. This is forever. That becomes very plain in the verses that follow. Through him, through Christ, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's an eternal hope. 
then this. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love, God's love for us has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And then he's going to go on and say that we were God's enemies and all of those kinds of things. And therefore, having been justified by Christ's blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of Christ, much more now that we've been reconciled, shall we be saved. But you see the pattern. Having been justified, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God forever. We can endure through suffering. We can even rejoice in them, knowing that good things are being produced in us. How can we do that? Because we know that God loves us, and we know that God's for us, and we know that just as we have been presently justified, we will be finally saved. That's how this goes. The pattern in our text today is the very same thing. Paul deals with our fear and our dread and accusations and anxiety before the Lord. He comforts us that we're safe. We are not destined for wrath, but we're destined to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And having grounded us in that, having shown us God's love to us in that, he moves on to bolster us against affliction and against the sufferings that we experience as well as the spiritual war in which we're engaged. And he's going to bring it all back around to the love of Christ for us in verse 39. Saints, it is only in knowing that we are Christ's, in knowing that we're safe, in knowing that we have peace with our Lord and that we will be with him, that we are able to trust him and rely on him and have confidence in him no matter what comes knowing that he loves us, knowing that he saved us, knowing that we're secure, we can rely and hope and confide in him in the midst of any war that we ever face. That's Paul's argument. Second point of reflection. Compare the end of Romans 7 and the end of Romans 8. This is kind of a cool thing to do when you read the scriptures. Compare sections. We're going to compare the latter verses of Romans 7 in the latter verses of Romans 8. May this encourage your soul. The end of Romans 7, you know, is Paul writing of himself. This is a believer's assessment of himself as a sinner in and of himself. What has he said? Pointedly, for example, from verse 15 to the end of Romans 7. I don't understand my own actions, he says. I'm a riddle to myself, right, said John Newton. A heap of inconsistent. Sounds like Paul. I don't do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. I desire to do what's right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. I don't do the good that I want, but the evil that I don't want is what I keep on doing. When I want to do right, evil is always there. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but there's another law in my members that wages war against my mind and makes me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my flesh. What's the final assessment? Wretched, wretched man that I am. That's the believer's assessment of himself as a sinner in and of himself. Let's look to the end of Romans 8. What is the believer's assessment of himself in Christ, though? Not on his own, but in Christ. 
far different. The question, who in Christ Jesus, because of him and on account of him, who can bring any charge against me? That's the believer's testimony. Because of Christ and on account of him, because I am united to him, who is there, including Satan himself, who can condemn me? Who is there? What is there that can separate me from the love of Christ? What a remarkable difference. I'm wretched and weak. That's my assessment of myself. In need of deliverance. And in Christ Jesus, the most powerful things in the universe can't touch me because Christ has me. It's as Martin Luther said. It's kind of an urban legend quote. When I look at myself, I don't know how I could ever be saved. But when I look to Christ, I don't know how I could ever be lost. Amen. That's the hope. Good news. That was a brief second point of reflection and application. Now we're on to the third, which will be our conclusion. I want to consider for just a moment the love and the power of Christ for us, and even just the goodness of God to us in all of this. Think, believer, think on what the Lord has done for you, and then of the love of Christ for you. In God's grace, this is like Galatians 1. In God's grace, he has seen fit to reveal his son to us. We didn't deserve that. We weren't seekers. We were no different than anyone else. Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. In God's goodness and grace, he revealed his son to us. He broke our hearts by his spirit. He broke our hearts with the law. He opened our eyes to himself and his holiness, to our sin and to our Savior. We have been struck with a sense of God's holiness and thereby the holiness of the law. We have understood its standard. We have become convinced of our sinfulness. We've seen the depth of our ruin. And we know we have nothing to bring. We know that all of our labors, that all of our prayers and our sighs and our tears could never atone for our sin. Could we weep our eyes out? With grief over sin perpetually, it wouldn't work. Could our zeal for the Lord never wane? It's not enough. These could never attain the righteous requirements of the law. God has shown us that. And so, seeing these things and catching a glimpse of these things, we don't know everything, but we know that Christ is the only hope for a wretched offender such as we. And so we have gone to him. We have gone to Jesus. I will arise and go to Jesus. Come ye sinners, poor and needy. We have fallen at his feet. We have clung to him. We have cast ourselves on him completely. We have turned from our sin, yes, and we have turned from our own notions of our own virtue. We don't just renounce vice. We renounce virtue. But Paul writes of in Philippians 3. He's renouncing the best things about himself. And we have set our faith 
and our hope and our trust and our confidence on Christ and on him alone. We have said, perhaps in our hearts or with our own lips, Lord Jesus, you are all we have. You're all we have for forgiveness. You're all we have for righteousness. You're all we have for eternal life. And he has said some things to us in return. He has looked at us and said, I've got you. You're mine. and I'm yours. He says, I'm never going to cast you out. Your sins, though they are many, they're forgiven. And I will raise you up on the last day. I have gone before you to prepare a place for you. And I will come again to take you to myself. That where I am, you may also be. I am the good shepherd. And you are my sheep. I will watch over you. I will protect you. Do not be afraid. Now, beloved, can anything, can anyone take us from him? If Jesus said all these things, and he is who he says he is, how could we ever be lost from him? We have fled to him. Remember, we have taken refuge in him. We have put all of our hope and our trust in him, and we are now members of his body. How do we think that he would ever let us go? He won't. From verse 26 onward, Romans 8, Paul has made clear that the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are all at work for our salvation. There's perfect unity in the Godhead. Though the entire creation is groaning for now, and though we are groaning now, we know that God works all things together for our eternal good. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, takes up residence in our hearts, and he intercedes for us. Jesus, God the Son incarnate, lived for us and died for us and was raised for us and is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. God the Father has chosen us from all of eternity. He has called us and has united us to his Son by faith. He has justified us and he will glorify us. God the Father, God himself, pronounces us just because Christ is just. This is why Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. All of these great truths are why 
Paul literally defies the universe itself. He defies the entire universe to separate us from the love of God in Christ. Nothing and no one can. Paul began, consider this, Paul began Romans 8 with the declaration that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And it ends with the assurance that nothing will ever be able to separate us from his love. There is no condemnation and there is no separation from his love. Our salvation is complete in Christ and our union with him is unbreakable. And so beloved, when we come to this table and we continue to sing, and then later on today we depart from this place, we depart in peace. We depart in hope. We depart with joy because these things are true. Nothing will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray.